Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson uh, with the firm Echelon Insights, and I'm the Republican pollster on the show. And this week, we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. And I want to apologize to our listeners. I am remote this week. I am up in New Hampshire, so we are having yet another show where Margie and I are sadly not in the same location. And I'm still in my closet. (laughs) I haven't come out of the closet yet. (laughs) (laughs) I've constructed this four around me of like pillows and things here at this courtyard Marriott in Manchester. So I'm hoping that sounds like a somewhat adequate studio. Are you doing uh, focus groups for Donald Trump? Is that what you're doing up there? You, you <laughs> nailed it. You, I'm busted. Guilty as charged. Uh, so this week's top lines, have we reached peak Trump? Or will next week finally be the week the Trump bubble bursts? Uh, Is he the Republican Nickelback? We will discuss. And we'll also talk about, as we're heading into this first debate, who is in, who is out, and who is winning over Republican hearts. Then, with diplomatic relations being established with Cuba, we'll take a quick look at how voters are feeling about that changing relationship. Uh, We'll dig deep into some data on things like smoking pot. Um, And consumption of everything from alcohol to coffee to fat. What are people putting in their bodies? How does this differ by demographic group? We will ask the hard questions. Uh, (laughs) And what do people want to ban in their libraries? Are they more concerned about books that have sex, language, violence, uh, anti-religion messages, religious messages? Um, We'll take a look at what some of the survey data has to say. So... It basically, people are basically going bananas over Trump. I mean, that's, that's you know, the moral of the story. If you look, spend, you know, five minutes looking at Twitter or watching uh, political news, that's the common thread here. And I think it's useful not to just slog through every single poll because every single poll shows the same thing. Poll, uh, Trump is number one or he's number two. That, you know, that's that's consistent. I think it's important to break this out into a variety of different sub questions. Right. These are the questions that keep coming up first. Is this actually real? Are the polls actually reflecting a reality where Trump is doing well or is it somehow not reflecting that reality Two, what is behind it? Is it just people saying, you know, we I get to vote for Trump in a poll or is there something specific that they are glomming on to? And then third is, is this, will it last? Is this just a fling? Is this a summer fling? As I heard Mark Halpern say this morning, can someone succeed 
when he's unpopular? And, you know, what if polls show people don't think he can win? Then what does that mean? And then the last thing is, does this have any effect on the Republican brand having this debate over the field and having the field being taken over by someone who is unpopular nationally? What does that mean for the Republican brand or the Democratic brand? So. The first one, is this real? Now, your business partner, Kristen, wrote um, wrote something that got picked up in a couple outlets, uh, Patrick, about, um, uh, you know, maybe the polls are, are overestimating this Trump bump because so many of them are national. National primary polls are really a different animal than a state caucus goer poll in Iowa where the voters are different, the methodology is different. You know, what do you think of his argument? What do you think as more polls continue to come out, seems like one or two polls come out a day? I think it's a question of who are we, who is it important for us to be surveying? Who is the relevant audience at this stage in the game? So does it matter what a voter who is a Republican who's maybe kind of paying attention or they're an independent leaning Republican and they live in California. Does it matter at this point in the game what they think? Because none of these candidates are going to come visit their state. None of these candidates are going to be focused on trying to win California, at least in the short run. So really all they're going to get is whatever the national news covers about the primary, which of course at this point is what is the latest crazy pants thing that Donald Trump said. Um, So, you know, the point that that Patrick and I think some others have tried to make is, look, we're deciding who gets into these debates or not based on polls that are being taken of voters who are not going to influence this primary so much. So it was uh, BJ Martino, who's a a fellow Republican pollster. He kind of had like this tweet rant last week that, that is something that I think I've said on the show before, too, that simultaneously these polls are capturing too many people where they're capturing a ton of people who are not actually going to vote in a Republican primary, but then they're capturing too few people in that the sample size is too small. Um, And so I have no doubt that right now about a quarter of people who are Republican or Republican-ish have heard Trump on TV. They're amused by him. Maybe they like something he says. You know, we'll get into this when we talk about your second question, what's driving it. But I'm sure that 25 percent or so of, you know, 20 to 25 percent of people who in some way could kind of be Republican also in some way kind of are amused by Trump and and have seen him in the news and, and would probably vote for him. I mean, I don't think that it's inaccurate in that sense. I do think that, you know, you've got only, say, 10 percent of registered voters in the state of Iowa um, are going to go to the Iowa caucus. But you do these polls where you say, all right, I'm surveying all these registered voters in Iowa, and now a third of them are people I'm going to count as potential caucus goers. Well, but only a third of your third is actually going to be people who show up at the caucus. Right. And it's not like people are particularly enthusiastic. I mean, there's been data that suggests maybe they're less enthusiastic than they've been in the past, certainly not more enthusiastic than they've been. Right. And I think that will change. I mean, what I've seen as I've been doing focus groups here in New Hampshire and in other places is that a lot of voters who are these, you know, potential Republican primary or caucus goers, a lot of them are intentionally not paying attention yet. They think the field is just too large in size. They can almost all name for you that it's 16 or now 17 people who are running. Um, But they're just like, I'm waiting for the field to shrink before I even start allowing myself to care or pay attention or sift through the mayhem. So I think Trump is really benefiting from that. Um, And 
so so I I think that you know the bump at this point you've got to think it's real in some way because it's it's multiple polls but I think I still believe it is this totally media driven nobody's paying attention in the rest of the field yet and I believe that once we have this first debate if the field begins to shrink if other people get some airtime in the national media I believe some of these numbers will settle back down. I remain convinced that there is a 0% chance that Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination. I will bet all of my money on that. Donald Trump does not become the Republican nominee. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the primary is not today. So we have a long time for all that. You know, I I too think that it's real. I I hear the point about, you know, primary voters in early states and recreating the elaborate complicated process that is our primary our nominating system is tough to do looking at national polls but there are just too many right now and they're going to be a lot more before the august august 6th debate so we're going to see a few more just in the next week um but you know i think you have some that use a list you have some that are rdd some that are ivr which is automated some are national some are iowa and new hampshire what what have you they all point to the same thing so whether trump is first or second or somewhere in that range it's still a a step up from where he was two months ago so i i think i too think that it's real um and we can move now into question two, which is what's behind it, because the moral of the story from the focus groups that my firm Purple did last night in uh, collaboration with Bloomberg Politics, folks may have seen some of the clips on Morning Joe on MSNBC this morning. It'll be discussed on with all due respect uh, by uh, Mark Halperin and John Heilman. Uh, We'll go into more detail. And there's also a story about it. The moral of those groups was it's real. The, the support is real. They like him. They aren't just saying they aren't, you know, also trolling us. <laughs> they are voters who respond to him. And the question is, what are they responding to? Are they responding to the absence of enthusiasm toward everybody else? Are they responding to his personality, his willingness to tell it like it is and, you know, and uh, say what he means? Or are they responding to a specific issue point? for example, immigration. And I think, you know, it seems more of the last two than the first one. It's really not so much of a, well, he's the guy I've heard of and I don't really know anything about these other folks yet. It's a little bit more of, you know, he is, he's saying what he believes. He's speaking in, you know, a clear way. And in fact, they use some really fervent language. So I should note that the focus groups were just of Trump voters in the primary in New Hampshire. Those are folks in New Hampshire, Republicans who are currently supporting Trump, not folks in states where nobody's going to come visit. This is, you know, engaged primary voters. And and they're supporting him because they think he, we heard words like classy. He's going to have the best people around him. He's oh like God. us. He's a millionaire. He may be a millionaire, but he's like us because he says what's on his mind. And, you know, that that sort of Bullworth, I guess, you know, the thing of his, um, people respond to. And, you know, it's a reaction in part to feeling that the political process has become too uh, sanitized. Uh, politicians are not authentic. They just want to say what you want to hear, not what they believe. And it's hard to make heads or tails of what they're going to do. You know, those kinds of j- objections that we hear a lot from voters and not without, you know, that are fair criticisms of the process, right? They are fair criticisms. There's an alternative view to it, but there's a fair critiques of the process. And so Trump is seen as a, as the antithesis of that. And I, you know, and I think that's what a lot of voters are responding to. 
Also, you can argue, as you're talking about the media coverage, he's breaking through. Those those quotes allow him to break through. Now, the moderator, which is John Heilman, pushed back. So, OK, well, what about some of the specific things here about Trump, for example, his views on immigration, what he what he said about uh, Mexican-Americans and um that didn't bother a lot of voters. So so I don't that seemed to help him his viewpoints on immigration. It wasn't the standalone reason. Yeah, I've seen other folks cover this. I think it was in the Washington Post and I've seen other folks talk about this. Well, there's a group of Republicans who are uh, and, you know, they're uh, very tough on immigration. They don't feel immigrants add to, you know, to our culture. Um they think that most people who immigrate here are uh, criminals, like, you know, corresponding with the Bush, with the Trump uh, quotes. That's, you know, I don't think that that's what's driving people. I don't think people are looking for a candidate who's going to say something incendiary on immigration and say, OK, that's my guy. I think, you know, they, they just look at his frankness as refreshing. Um, and immigration is is the one example of it. Um, you know, I haven't seen a lot of the other stuff yet percolate in, and and cause people to get upset with Trump, whether it's the McCain comments or whether the fact that he was a Democrat or that he's donated to Clinton or, you know, any of those other things. Those things all have explanations. Um, and they're all symbols of Trump's, you know, frankness and willing to just say whatever he wants in a way that, you know, voters w- want to themselves. So I think I've now talked for a while about this, but basically... I think the bottom line here is, you know, we should look at these as not single immigration voters, um, but as, you know, voters who are looking for something, you know, refreshing. I mean, they think that the Trump presidency would bring hope back, we heard in one of the groups. Um, And, uh, you know, he he I mean, the fact that he would be classy or strong on the economy. I mean, these are folks who have been familiar with Trump for a long time. You know, one one person said that they read Art of the Deal when they were young. Another person wrote him a letter when when she was a kid because she, you know, had this aspiration to to earn money the way he has. So um, I don't think it's immigration. I mean, CNN, I believe it is, asked what your top issue would be among Republicans. Immigration is you know, far down the list. It's not, you know, it's not top tier. So I, I am, that's been, we've seen that in polling now for a while and the, you know, both, both parties really. So, so this is really about him the, as the character, the character of Donald Trump that's appealing. What makes me concerned, so sort of thinking about your, the last question you posed, which is, is this going to damage the Republican brand then? So, I mean, I think that this, what, what, what concerns me perhaps the most about this is that, again, not, I do not think Donald Trump is going to win the nomination. That is not the fear that is keeping me up at night. And frankly, most voters agree with you, by the way. I mean, Republican right. voters agree with you. Yeah, that they don't think he's going to win the nomination. Yeah, he does a lot better in the polls than in a poll question of who's going to win. And he doesn't win that vote. Yeah. And, and interestingly, there have been previous elections. I mean, I don't know how it works in, in a primary like this and this far out where but where that question of who do you think is going to win is actually sometimes more predictive of that of who will ultimately win than who are you voting for. Um, but but nonetheless, what, what worries me is not that Donald Trump will win the nomination. And what worries me is not that people think Donald Trump is what republic like is the 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 standard bearer of what it means to be republican what worries me is that all of these polls that are coming out where donald trump is at the top of the poll 
now I feel like if you're an independent or you're a Democratic voter, you read the headlines, you read the reporting on these polls, and you don't realize that, hey, it's, you know, it's 200 voters, you know, across the country. Like, you know, you don't know anything about the methodological stuff. You just know there's a headline that says Republican voters love Trump. And you've heard all of this stuff on the news about marital rape and Mexican-Americans and breastfeeding and whatever crazy nonsense has been going on. And you start thinking, well, are Republicans okay with this? I mean, and I would argue that the Trump crew, again, represents about a fifth of the party. It's not the whole party. Most of the party doesn't like this guy and can't stand him and thinks he's nuts. Um, but because the field is so spread out, you win a fifth of the party, you're atop the polls. Congratulations. And so my biggest fear is not that Trump wins, but rather that the fact that he gets a fifth of the Republican Party kind of supporting him really early on at this stage in the game makes people think Republican voters crave what Trump has. Right. And even though four-fifths of the party are not voting for him. And a majority of the party doesn't want him to be president. That that's still, the headline is, Republicans love Trump. Yes, and, and Republican... If you're independent, you're like, ew, I don't want anything to do with this crazy. Right. Because they're a bunch of lunatics. Right. That's the fear that is... And that's why I keep going on these Twitter rants every so often about the media coverage of these polls, because that's what I think is is the bigger problem. Not the poll methodology, that's fine, and not the fact that a quarter of people like Trump because, hey, he's all the media is talking about. But the damage to the Republican brand from these polls saying, oh, Republicans love Trump. When I think the real storyline is a little more nuanced is what's stressing me out. Yeah, no. And you have a lot of Republican insiders and leaders, you know, sharing your view, which is being pretty open and saying that that, you know, Trump is not part of the party. And, you know, Nate Silver has written about this. You know, I think the monkey cage also wrote about this. Like, you know, what what does popularity at this stage mean? And it basically means not much, you know, so the fact that um you know, that he does well, that he does well now is not necessarily a predictor. The fact that he's unpopular could change. Um, but it's important to recognize that the that he may be, as as you mentioned, and as Nate Silver writes, you know, he may get 20 percent of the vote. But if the other 80 percent, you know, doesn't like him and he is one of the most unpopular Republican candidates among Republicans, then, you know, then he doesn't you know, that that's a that's a big hurdle nonetheless to overcome. Right. And and I think that, you know, that's something that that people are looking at. And the other the other thing is, does it hurt the Republican brand? There have been both Pew and Gallup showed in the last couple of weeks that. The Republican brand and relative to the Democratic brand has taken a hit in terms of just the party favorability overall. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that that's that Trump is the reason. It doesn't mean the field is the reason it could. We don't know what the reason is. Right. That that that's something that just simply fluctuates. I, I You know, there hasn't been a lot of you know, there haven't been that many sort of policy debates right now. So it seems like a little bit more of a political battle. But, you know, it could be something that doesn't have. Anything to do with politics or policy it could be something more on the climate or it could just be ephemera right in the in the ether. Um, but it is, you know, it, there is potentially um, a downside to having Trump be the you know leader in the field and the leading the coverage or having such a large field in general, which polls show uh, most people think that that's not good for the party to have such a large field. And actually, it's growing again today. You know, one more person today, I think. Um, so. 
it continues to grow. We'll see what happens after after the primary. Um, so, well, speaking of the big field, yes. sort of as we wrap up our 2016 questions discussion. So by the next, by the time we record next, either the republic we will either be recording the morning of the Republican debate, or you know, but by the time we we meet next, the debate stage will be set. Yes, we will know who is debating. So this is sort of our last show before the cutoff. And at the moment, I have just pulled up HuffingtonPostPollster.com. Um, and I'm looking at the top 10 and the top 10, Trump, Bush, Walker, Carson, Rubio. Those top five don't surprise me. Then you've got Huckabee, Cruz, Rand Paul, Chris Christie. And they've, they've pretty consistently been there. And then you've got this last spot. Who is in the bubble spot? And at the moment, their polling average, which is not is is there's modeling involved there, so it's not just an average. They they have like special sauce, um, but they have John Kasich in the bubble seat. Right, just 2, made it three percent in their trend line, just making it. Directly behind him is Rick Perry at two point zero percent. So this is like tenths of a point deciding oh. if my beloved hipster glasses Rick Perry or Ohio's John Kasich. Or then Rick Santorum, Carly Fiorina, and Bobby Jindal are also, I mean, they are all within one percentage point of John Casey. I mean, this is just crazy town. It's amazing if you look at the people at the bottom of this. I mean, you have governors from giant states, you know, at the bottom of this list. And senators from swing or early. So everybody on the bottom, not everybody, but many of the people at the bottom of this list are either governors or former governors, senators or former senators of early voting or battleground states. I mean, that is pretty incredible. While you have, you know, a couple folks at the top of this list who are not election holders at all you know i mean it's or un, or or unpopular or first first or second termers you know i mean that's pretty i think i find that that's pretty incredible i mean it's a sign of you know people definitely looking for something new or at least yeah. you know maybe they're not finding it but they're looking for something new yep. um so yeah so and there's also going to be a ton of polling out before next week and we should try we should definitely try and talk to one of those folks but that's, that's going to be our plan so yeah, we can sure. dig deep because people are going to continue to go bananas over this over the over the next week. And just to, there's just a teeny bit on the Democratic side. It's not nearly as heated as the Republican side. Um, there's been, uh, you know, the NBC Marist poll in New Hampshire and Iowa confirmed in, among Democrats in New Hampshire what we've seen now in a few polls, which is Sanders actually not that far away from uh, Clinton, you know, just I think it's what is it forty seven thirty four, which is you know that's that's not um that's not a wide gulf, although it's much wider uh, in Iowa and nationally. And then there was also a new uh, Quinnipiac poll that came out today that showed uh, close races in the general um, with Clinton or with Sanders and uh, more with Clinton with some of the top Republican candidates uh, like Bush and Walker and Rubio. I think Trump. Does Trump trails? I think Sanders and Clinton. I think is what that poll showed. So that's you know another another point of the sort of not just will he win the Republican primary, but is he electable? And you know there's a sense that he's not electable. Looking at least some of the general election polling. But who would have thought we would have had Trump versus Sanders general election matchups at this stage? Not not I. So I I did not have that called either. <laughs> okay, so moving on. So now. Issues. So there's, you know, it, there are still some issues being debated. It's not simply Trump, yes or no. 
So what's on the docket in terms of international issues in Cuba? Yes. So Cuba, uh, I believe this week we've got um, Hillary Clinton coming out in support of the Obama administration's moves on Cuba um, and and the the reestablishing of diplomatic relations and the push to end the trade embargo. Um, And this is one of those issues where you have, so we didn't actually talk about is Trump the nickelback of, of the oh, yes. field, but, but I'll, I'll reference it briefly to, to set up this, this Cuba thing. So Nate Silver wrote a column about how is Trump the, the nickelback of, of the Republican field, meaning most people kind of hold one view, which is they don't like nickelback. But then there is this small core of people who love nickelback, and it's enough to make nickelback this fabulously wealthy band, even though most Americans you know, may may sneer at them. No, just to um, tie it to one of our very first episodes, I once saw a quote where somebody called Rahm Emanuel's office, the mayor of Chicago, and said, does Rahm like Nickelback? And <laughs> they had to go on the record. Someone went on the record to say the mayor does not like Nickelback. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, Wow. <laughs> Sorry, sorry to get us off track. So with Nickelback being the example of there's a difference between what the polls show and where the intensity is, um, you know, Cuba is one of those issues where the polls are just overwhelmingly kind of in one direction, right? You have um, 73% of people in the most recent Pew Research Center poll, which came out of the field last week, say they approve of reestablishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. And you have 72% who say they would uh, favor ending the trade embargo with Cuba. And this is also a, a shift from earlier this year in January when some of these moves, you know, I think it was around Christmas time that a lot of this was first announced that it was in the yeah. works. Um, you know, there's been an, an increase in te- of 10 points in the number of people who approve or disapprove of reestablishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. I know. But, I think that's interesting because like not, you know, there hasn't really been any news other than this is happening. Right. And the fact that we've right. just been talking, you know, this is happening. It's not something that I think a lot of voters are going to be following breathlessly. But nonetheless, just that hum of this is something that we're moving toward, I guess, right. move the polls. Yeah, like Conan O'Brien go down to Cuba and tape a show. I mean, I think oh, it's right. that's true. Permeate culture in little ways. And so, you, you know, you're seeing you're seeing the shift. But it's interesting. They, they, CBS also did a similar poll and they, they asked this question, do you approve or disapprove of reestablishing diplomatic relations and found very similar results, overwhelming with support for reestablishing diplomatic relations. But the partisan break was different. And you had about half, you had, Republicans are pretty evenly split between approve and disapprove. Um, and you've seen the Republican field, you know, folks like Marco Rubio, I think Jeb Bush, you've seen a lot of the Republican candidates come out opposing reestablishing relations, talking about how, no, this isn't actually going to make anything better. And you do see in the polls, by the way, about a plurality of people overall say that they don't think that this will make Cuba more democratic. They think Cuba will remain about the same. Um, So you see all these Republicans like opposing this action. Normally you'd think, oh my gosh, if you're opposing something that three quarters of Americans support, isn't that a politically dumb move? And yet Within the Republican context, Republicans are split. And I think, you know, it's likely that this is one of those issues where the folks who oppose relations with Cuba are the ones most animated because they're the, they're the ones that either their families are most affected by it or like this is something that is just a, a, a passionate issue for them. Right. Or 
are we talking about, a, you know, a small group of Florida voters that can really swing both the primary and the general, in fact? Has, has Florida ever decided a close election before? Uh, you know, I seem to recall <laughs> that there was once a time. That's their specialty. Yeah. So this could be this could be the issue. Um, so moving on to some more, I guess, fun stuff for your summer. Um, there's been a lot of some th- some things are fun. Some things maybe just, you know, just to monitor. Um, but there's been a lot of stuff coming out both in Gallup and the New York Times has a few stories, too, about what's going on in health um, and usage, um, both in terms of you know calories in uh, weight changes in uh, obesity and trends in also marijuana, alcohol, and coffee use. Not that all those things are necessarily related, but there's just been a, a big release of a variety of data points. So um, so one thing that I think is pretty interesting, you see marijuana, people who say they've tried it, has gone up really considerably since the 60s and 70s, which is how long Gallup's been tracking this. It used to be single digits, 11 12% in the 70s, and now we're talking about 44%. One in 10 say they currently smoke pot, but you have you know, about 44% say they have tried it. What I don't know from here is... Is this just a trend in how acceptable it is to say you've tried it or an actual increase in percentage people of people trying it? How much is it related to uh, legalization efforts in a variety of states or is it or are the legalization efforts and their success a result of this softening views toward marijuana overall? Don't know. Some of this seems like it's a cumulative effect, right? So you're talking about this trend line, you're going back to 19... Uh, you know, 1970, where you have 4% of people who say they have ever tried marijuana. And so the number is that trend line has to increase until people die off who have you know, like as more right. as that sounds like. So that trend line that now shows that almost half of Americans have at some point tried pot doesn't mean that half are, are you know, 44% are, do, are smoking pot right now. And in fact, um, the 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 Gallup data suggested says only about one one in ten Americans say they currently smoke pot, um, but you you've had this accumulation over time where you know somebody doesn't smoke pot anymore, but gosh they sure remember you know 1971 woohoo right um, so it, you know if you look at the at the age breakdown of the Gallup data on marijuana usage and I argue this in the selfie vote available at your local booksellers, um, wherever fine books are sold. Um, I, I argue that actually younger people nowadays, with pretty much the exception of marijuana, and but we'll talk about this when we talk about the other substances, but are actually a little more leaning toward clean living than their parents' generation were when they were kids. So you only have 37% of people 18 to 29 who say that they have tried marijuana, but then you have half of people... 30 to 64, the Gen Xers and the boomers um, who say they've tried pot. So actually millennials are less likely to have tried pot than their like older aunts and uncles or their their parents generation. Yeah. Well, it's funny to me. We'll have to check in with them and, you know, see what Gallup finds, you know, 10 years from now. (laughs) (laughs) See if, see if they're, it's uh, just a matter of time. (laughs) Um, and then alcohol. So that, that's, has interesting results there too. You have, um, it's a change in the sense of whether or not it's healthy. And so Gallup has some, has some data on this again, that they just released in the last week. Majority say that it's, um, uh, 
that it's a that it's moderate drinking makes no difference to a health. You actually have slightly um, you have you know you have more saying that makes no difference. You have you know it, it's more saying it makes no difference than saying it's bad for you. So that's something that's been you know changing a little bit um, over time. And you have um, upscale voters. Well, you know, well-educated college graduates, folks in household with household income of seventy-five thousand or more, are particularly likely to say that they drink. You have seventy-eight percent of of folks in high-income households say that they drink. Eighty percent of college graduates say that they drink. If you look at less than thirty thousand uh, households, less than thirty thousand dollar households, only forty-five percent of those households say they drink. Just barely half of those with a high school degree or less say they drink. So, you know, so this is something, you know, we've had some conversations about um, uh, alcohol when it comes to SNAP benefits and what people should or shouldn't be able to buy. If you look at these data, it actually suggests that you know, downscale folks are less likely to engage in uh, alcohol use than folks who are upscale and and, uh, and presumably not um, receiving uh, uh, benefits like that. So I found that pretty interesting, that demographic breakout. And again, the younger people in the sample are more likely to think that drinking in moderation is bad for your health than the older people. If you grew up in the Mad Men era, if you are Don Draper, now turned senior citizen, uh, you are less likely to think that drinking two or one or two drinks a day is bad for your health than someone who is is under the age of 50. So maybe they just don't have all uh, life's pressures yet. <laughs> yeah, they, and they, so, they've, not, they've not yet faced that balance. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? And so then coffee. So the coffee, this I really, I, I could definitely identify with, right? The coffee hasn't really changed. So, you know, basically you have two thirds of folks who say that they drink, you know, one or more cups a day. Um, and the average is between two and three cups a day among drinkers. And that hasn't really changed much from 1999 till now. What I found particularly interesting is the percent that say that they want to cut back. Right, A quarter of coffee drinkers say they're addicted, but only 10% of people who uh, drink coffee say they want to cut back, which I find pretty interesting. If you look at, some, you know, you always hear people talking about how they want to lose weight or eat healthier. You know, you don't have coffee drinkers say, you know what, I, <laughs> I want to drink less coffee. People are like, no, nope, I'm pretty happy with the coffee drinking habit I have today. And <laughs> that's something I can definitely identify with. I mean, we've talked before, I guess not on the show, about Emily Oster, who wrote, um, who looked at the data around uh, motherhood and pregnancy to get a sense that she couldn't really find when talking to her doctors about what what are the actual probabilities here and she looked at it with a statistician's view toward the data and she's written actually a 538 as well and she had a whole chapter about coffee saying i need coffee so i was really vested in trying to find the answer to how much coffee can i drink while pregnant and i looked at the data and i decided it was at the risk was fine so i'm doing it and i looked at the red her book and i said okay me too <laughs> based on <laughs> based on what you said me too just like a focus group respondent like you know a confirmation bias like this is what i wanted to find and then i found it and i said <laughs> I, I read her book as well, even though I, I do not have children and, and am not pregnant. But I, I read her book because I was just fascinated by this idea. And she, I mean, she's so she goes into all of the academic research and yeah. finds that, for instance, the, I think it was the study about coffee that actually they had not controlled for cocaine use. Yes. So, like, okay. Right. Sure. If you're not controlling for cocaine use, maybe maybe that sample will have more birth defects. Maybe it's because of the cocaine and not the coffee. Like so she presents this really compelling evidence for why a lot of things like 
coffee drinking are maybe not actually as bad for you and your baby when you're pregnant as the media would have you believe. Um, as somebody who drinks a, a coffee-related beverage on a daily basis, but not coffee itself, I am like an iced mocha addict. Um. I drink iced mochas even when it's 10 degrees outside. Um, so does that count? Like, I'm, yes. I'm trying to think of how I would res- – I would guess I would respond yes to this question because a shot of espresso is kind of like a cup of coffee. And, I, you know, if I order a normal one, then I've got a double shot of espresso. So that's like two cups of coffee, I guess. But I just I, – I wonder, you know, Starbucks has now made it possible for people like me who are total wusses and actually don't like coffee itself to still consume tons and tons of coffee. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure – when Starbucks does its polling, it has a variety of questions to make sure it fully captures number of <laughs> shots, iced, not, etc. Gallup is just coffee and hopes you can you can you know figure, figure. answer <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> well, also they need a track from 1999 when there weren't probably a lot of like double shot iced mocha drinkers. <laughs> uh, America, we're getting soft. This is what Trump is talking about. Make America great again. I'm going to talk tough on coffee. <laughs> yeah, talk tough on coffee. We become a nation of orange mo- mocha frappuccino drinkers, and that tyranny has to end. <laughs> so, so what yeah, what what salt? was interesting about the fat and salt, and I think they have sugar in here or gluten. Gluten, yes. So, um, in Americans are not really uh, trying to avoid fat as much. Um, in in the early 2000s, you had 62, 64 percent of Americans who said, "You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid fat in my diet." Um, but remember, it was around that time then that you had the kind of South Beach diet and Atkins diet and stuff like that pop up, which then shifted the enemy from being snack fat. wells, snack well cookies. Right? That was like, another one. Yeah, like the 90s was the low-fat era, and then the 2000s, and so then it became the, like, no more carbs era. And so you've actually now seen less than half of Americans are trying to avoid fat. Um, a quarter of them don't even think about it. And you then you have another quarter that say they're, like, they're actively trying to include fat in their diet. And, again, you have these diets now, like the Mediterranean diet, which is all about including, like, olive oil is like what they call good fats in your diet. So things have changed a lot from, from the diet fats of, of the nineties, it seems. Um, and you have, you have women who say they're more likely to be avoiding fat than men. Um, and you actually have older Americans who are more likely to say they're avoiding fat than our younger Americans. Um, and then salt has become another thing that in, in I think recent years has become one of those like dietary, um, it had become one of those dietary enemies, but the most recent polling done by, by Gallup actually shows a big drop in just the last year of people who say they're avoiding consuming fat in their diet. They're only 39% say they avoid salt. Um, 35% say they include it. They, so, you know, Americans are, are this year more comfortable saying, bring on the fat, bring on the salt. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting. And then you see gluten. I mean, this is new, right? This is, I mean, all of this reflects the fact that diets and what people think they should or shouldn't include, it change considerably. They change over time. They sometimes or sometimes don't change with, with what quote unquote experts are saying. They just, they're, they're pretty, uh, they can be somewhat volatile. Gluten, which has been in the news for a while, um, uh, in the last couple of years, and you see here that about seventeen percent, one in six, say that they avoid um, 
gluten-free foods. Uh, most people say they don't really think about gluten-free. Um, but then you have actually a third of non-whites, I found this interesting, say they try to include gluten-free foods in their diet. Um, you have more younger voter, younger folks saying that they include gluten-free vote, uh, food, not gluten voters, but food in their diet. So, I mean, that's something that, you know, hasn't quite taken America by storm, but it's still a pretty sizable number given that I think it's just one in a hundred who are, um, truly allergic to gluten. So it's pretty interesting how, how some of these demographics break out. Women, again, not surprisingly, a little bit more food aware, as we say. They're a little bit more likely to say they include gluten-free foods than, than men, but not dramatically so. Um, and then, you know, I, whether or not this is all related, but it's still part of the same, you know, seemingly data dump over the past week or so, which is a real drop in calories eaten. I don't know if this is related to to uh, trends in fat, salt, or gluten or not. Um, but you see whether, however it's measured, and this is from the New York Times, whether it's food supply or whether it's a diary, whether it's in households with children or without children, you see a real drop in the change in uh, daily categories, I mean daily calories. But here's what I think is important to look at in some of the Times coverage is that it's very difficult to accurately measure calories that you can do a uh, diary yourself and you may get it wrong. You know, how many candies did you eat? How many bites of rice did you have? How much butter did you put in it? It gets very complicated. Um, If you look at purchases, then you're not accounting for the food that a family wastes in their household, right? You could buy a ton of vegetables with the intention of making soup. And if, you know, you have to compost half of it, then, you know, you didn't buy that stuff, right? So um, so it, it you can't measure that as accurately. So nonetheless, though, despite all those measurement issues, there still seems to be a real drop in, in calories eaten, which um, is, you know, not necessarily related to, you know, looking at things like, des- you know, desserts actually have gone up. So it's not, you know, we didn't have a sugar data point, but it's interesting that the percent that say that they've had more desserts actually has gone up. So it's not necessarily that people are now just moving only to vegetables or getting rid of meat because you see some of those changes really more at the margins, not as dramatic as the overall pattern. Um, yeah, the, the biggest drop off there is is around soda, sugar, sweetened beverages, the like high, high fructose corn syrup. Soda is on the decline. I remember growing up like we, we had, we, we would drink soda in my household. Um, but then I, I had a lot of friends where like they weren't allowed to drink soda unless it was the weekend. If it was the weekend, they could drink soda. Um, when I think back to what I would eat for lunch at the cafeteria in the ninth grade, I'm kind of horrified because it was pretty much a cherry Coke and a bag of Doritos. And yet somehow I'm not dead. I'm alive. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible. Um, but yeah, the, 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 I think the, there's been a lot of debate around the whole Michelle Obama, let's move, like, let's, you know, let's change what we're serving in, in schools. And I, I have seen that I think like the, it was like the American Beverage Association or whatever, like they pulled sugar sweetened beverages out of school. That's right. You can only get diet sodas now or diet beverages in schools. So I wonder if this is the data, if I, like this is this is what's showing up in the data, that that's the big drop in calories. All right. That's right. I and no longer have my cherry Coke and Doritos diet if I wanted to. Yes, you can. <laughs> you can. And, and adults, 
and I can, and I choose not to. <laughs> Everything in moderation. No, there was actually an uh, article in the Times, uh, or I think it was an op-ed in the Times in the last week, from a researcher who said, look, it's not, it's it's um, added sugar that's the issue, not sweeteners, you know, non-calorie sweeteners, and talks about what he feeds his family. So there's still, you know, I think what we hear a lot from people is, you know, I'm not sure like who to trust for information. It's hard to get information sometimes, just like people say the same thing about candidates. Um, but nonetheless, in the trends in terms of health, I think there's, you know, there are a lot of good, st- I think a lot of people can can take credit for this this movement. This is actually pretty good. And then Gallup also shows that more people are exercising as well. So that's, you know, so that's happening too. And that's, you know, that's a sign that across the board, there's sort of holistic improvement. I love the way that this chart looks. By the way, I would encourage all know, of our, right? our listeners to go into the show notes and find this. So the chart, and, and they must ask this question pretty frequently. It must be like a monthly thing because they can show how the number of, of uh, the percentage of people who exercise 30 minutes or more um, you, goes up dramatically as you approach the summer. And then as summer ends, it like falls off dramatically and you hit the holidays and it just like bottoms out. Um so you, 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 although you do still have about 44 to 48% of people who even during the holidays claim yes. that they have exercised 30 plus minutes or more, but you, I, I might consider myself part of this swing group when, when it goes from 47% to 56% as summer approaches, there's this like window of Americans who suddenly decide to start exercising and I'm. Actually, I wish I could say I was in that group. I'm probably not even in that group. But. Well, you can say it. <laughs> it may not be true. <laughs> but you have uh, two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds say they frequently exercise and just half of 65-year-olds, 65-plus. So there's an age right. piece there as well. So if you still have time after all your exercising and coffee and wine and salt <laughs> imbibing, you can, you may be able to go to the library and get a book or I think play a video game, but there are still a surprising number of people who want to see some books banned, whether from school libraries or simply banned outright. And I found some of these numbers pretty surprising. This is a Harris poll from a couple of weeks ago that actually my mom sent me, said this may be a good topic and it is <laughs> quite interesting that, you know, you have quite a few, you know, majorities of Americans think that people should be able to get a variety of books from school libraries, whether it's the Bible, books that discuss evolution or creationism. But you still have, you know, a not insignificant number that say, no, they should not be able to get some of these books from from school libraries. And you see some real, you know, if you start to get a little bit further down the list, books with violence, books with explicit language, witchcraft or sorcery, the Torah, the Quran, then you're talking about a third to, you know, about half saying, yes, those should be banned uh, from school libraries. So I found that pretty interesting. Um, And then when you get to you know, some of these other, you know, should, are there any things, is there anything that should be banned completely? You have not an insignificant number here saying video games should be banned completely. Television programs, 16% say television should be banned completely. 16% say movies should be banned completely. I mean, these numbers seem pretty high. What do you think, Kristen, of all this? I'm wondering if there are different reasons why, I mean, there, I assume there've got to be different reasons why so like something like video games i mean i wonder to what extent that's people saying this should be banned because the content is terrible and then to what extent is people saying these should be banned because they are a time suck a time suck for children you know tv and movies this is keeping us from doing productive things 
Um, on the books one, I was really interested to note to see that the total who think that, that actually, like if you think about the MPAA regular, like r- rules that decide what type of movies get rated like PG-13 or R, one of the big backlashes around that or, or the controversies is, you know, something that's got a lot of violence or a lot of bad language can still be PG-13. But if there's any sex involved in it, that's much more likely to get you bumped into our territory. Yes. But here in this question of like what should cause something to make a book get banned, um, it's actually bad language and violence that are slightly more objectionable to people than books with references to sex or drugs and alcohol. So um, I I thought that was interesting because it's a little bit different than maybe what I would have expected given – um, what I've heard about, like how you do, you know, movie ratings and things like that. There's a great um, documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated that goes into that exact thing about who are the folks who make the movie ratings and, you know, what do they look at? And there's also gender differences as well, according to the film. Anyway, so digression. Yeah. So. Um, but Republicans, it appears, are, are a demographic that is pretty anti-Twilight. Um, books that include vampires. So 36% of people overall think books which include vampires should be banned. This is um, a slight increase from 2011, but only by two points. And I think Twilight was out and was a thing around then. I am reasonably sure that I – it's a long story, but I had to read the first Twilight book. And I think it was in 2011 is when I read it. So – and I was not ahead of the curve. This was like – I was pretty far behind. Um, But but 59% of Republicans – think that books that include vampires should be banned from being in school libraries where children can get them. Yeah. I mean, it's this, I mean, I think these data, I don't know. I find it a little bit concerned, you know, cause you still, ha- I mean, the fact that people want to have ratings for books, you have 71% that say there should be a rating system for books. You don't see a big age difference on that. But then at the same time, you have a third saying, I'm more likely to read a book if it's banned about half of millennials, far fewer of seniors, even more say I'm more likely to read a book if it's controversial over half of millennials. So, you know, this is something that's been, you know, this has been, a well, that explains the whole 50 shades of gray. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is nothing new where the more you want to ban something, the more there's a book or record burning, the more likely younger people are going to say, well, what's in that now? Now I'm interested. Right. Um, so, so it's nothing really new there. Uh, but I still, I, I mean, I guess I'm just amazed that we're still having a, a, you know, there's still someone interested in having a conversation about book burning, you know, book banning, I guess not burning, but book banning. I mean, that to me, I find pretty incredible, but this poll didn't get a lot of traction, so hopefully we won't see Trump or anyone else talking about this oh, anytime Lord, yeah. soon. <laughs> so vacations. What does Roper tell us about vacations and interestingly checking email while on vacation? So what Roper tells – so we take taking a look at some polling um, that the Roper Center has compiled. Uh, they have data going back to 1939. I love these old Roper – I love yeah. these old Roper yeah. things. They're so great. Um, so this is this is a post. Uh, I don't know that it's a very new post, but because we're headed into August and the August recess, we thought this would be a nice little way to end the show. Um, so we, we took a look at questions about do you and do you or your husband, because, again, 1939 is your husband getting vacation. Back. Do you or your husband usually get a vacation with pay each year? And back in 1939, it was only 28 percent of people. And then that increased to 49 percent, 48 percent in 1949, 1950. Um, then by 1982, you actually have 75% of people who say they were getting one week 
or more um, paid vacation per year. Now, this was among people who were employed, not uh, didn't include people who are unemployed. So you're looking at a slightly different universe than you right. were for the people in the in the 1939 poll. Um, then fast forward again to 1997, you've still got 73% of people who told a U.S. News and World Report poll um, that they that they did get paid vacation and holidays. This did not specify a particular like amount of time. Um, but then if you jump to, to 2014, um, an all-state national journal poll said, did you receive paid vacation days, paid sick days, both or either of these? Um, and the percent saying they either received vacation time um, or both vacation and sick days among those who were ever employed had actually gone down to 64%. So suddenly vacation was less likely um, a thing that people had. And looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they also showed that paid vacation time has dropped from 70, from 82% of people who said they had it in, in 1992 to only 77% who the government said had it in 2012. So we've actually seen a decline in the the you saw this big increase by like the 80s and 90s of people getting paid vacation time that seems like it has declined in kind of the post-recession era. Yeah. Um, and you have now for, I think, kind of the one of the first times ever, Roper's data showing um, that a large number of people are not planning to take a vacation. Of 49% of people say they are not going to plan. In The last time they asked this question, which I think was perhaps last summer, said so they weren't planning on taking a vacation. Um since the, the beginning of when they had shown this data, um, 1991, um, you had 59% back then who said, yeah, I am going to take a vacation. So vacation is on the decline, and this makes me makes me sad. Um, and then you also have this dynamic of working while on vacation. So 49% of people told that Allstate National Journal poll that they check email or otherwise check in with work while they're on vacation. Isn't that amazingly, I find that amazingly low. I mean, I know why it's half, right? But it's certainly the other half seems to be everybody I know and work with, right? Yep. And and although, to be honest, you know, you would think, well, does that make you more stressed out? But actually, it makes me less stressed out if I check email a little bit, because otherwise, I'm just constantly worried that something is in my inbox that is urgent that I need to get. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to check my email on vacation. <laughs> Note to clients. Sorry, husband. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's just how it is. Um, great. Okay. So, you know, I think the bottom line here is there's, you know, there's Trump mania. Trump mania is going to continue now for at least a week. We're going to talk about it more next week because there are going to be more polls next week. Um, I think we have some preliminary answers to our three or four questions, um, but you know we still don't really quite know. We can't to- we can't predict the future. Polls can tell us where we are now. They can't predict the future of where Trump is headed and where support toward Trump is headed. But in the meantime, there's lots of good news about. You know, good news about coffee, good news about exercising. So whether you're checking your email or taking a vacation or exercising or eating something nice and salty, you know, make sure you're enjoying the last few weeks of summer. And so, Kristen, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at, at Margie O'Mero, at Casoltis Anderson, or at The Polsters. Um, we're also available at thepollsters.com or on Facebook, where you can find us posting all sorts of fun polling findings throughout the week. And you can get to our show on any uh, any podcatcher that you prefer. 
Yeah, and don't forget to write us a quick review on iTunes or wherever uh, you find us. And, you know, don't forget to follow our Facebook or Twitter feed because it's really one of the only places you can find basically every every poll, just about every poll. So we're, we keep it pretty up to date. Thanks. Bye.